on? Yes, it is. Wonderful. What a delight to be here with you this morning. What is that? Oh, that's the screens going up. You know, you never know. I'm in a different church every Sunday. You don't know what's going on. Sounds are different. Did like to be here with you this morning, and uh, newly ordained clergy, newly minted Steve, a priest of the church, and then the elder statesman, uh, Greg Kronz, right, <laughs> right behind him. He is a great leader of uh, the people of God, not only here at St. Luke's, but in this diocese and the larger Anglican world. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Please join me in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our lives for for our great good and for the greater glory of Jesus Christ our Bridegroom and Savior and King, for we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. When Harry Truman was President of the United States and his daughter and only child, Margaret, was preparing to be married while he was in office, The then Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, wrote to the nervous president, Harry, marriage is life's biggest risk. Marriage is life's biggest risk. Well, it is, isn't it? After all, how well do you really ever know anyone? And who knows what the future will bring. And after all, sometimes people change. And sometimes the one who changes is you. I know the words of the consent of the marriage service almost by heart. I used to look at the groom right in the eye and say, John, Will you have this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Well, that's a pretty awesome and fearful promise. If you're a young person in your early 20s and you're asked to make a commitment Till death do you part. It is certainly life's biggest risk. But may I suggest to you it's not only life in this world's biggest risk. You could say it is eternity's biggest risk. For that is how all of human history will end. With the marriage. With the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's how all human history concludes. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage between Christ and his church. Well, that's what the church is, isn't it? It is the bride of Christ. 
The priest, you know, has the best view in the house at a wedding. You may think if you're in the pew, you get a good view, but you don't see anything close to what the priest gets to witness. He's standing right there beside the groom and sees every twitch and movement that he makes. He can smell the breath of the groomsmen. He knows what they've been doing the night before. <laughs> or what they have not been doing. Thanks be to God. And then he can see when the, uh, the bridesmaids come down the aisle. And then the flower girl. And then the music, which is already pretty noble, suddenly becomes even more regal. And everyone knows the bride's going to be coming in and they stand and you can see her before anyone else as she starts down the aisle. Even the groom can't see her yet. And then you can see him as he sees her. And suddenly he becomes a bit more radiant. And, and she is trembling and glowing all at once. And you see the father of the groom begin to swallow hard. I used to always think that would never happen to me until I was walking my eldest daughter down the aisle and about midway through, suddenly this emotion began to well up and I thought, oh my gosh, it's happening to me too. <laughs> and I had to recompose myself because I immediately had to go back, put on my vestments and stand there to lead the service. It is a glorious moment. An astonishing event. Is it any wonder that Jesus spoke so often about weddings? Wedding feasts, fathers of the bridegroom, seating arrangements at a wedding, the wedding matings, five of them foolish, five of them wise. One parable after another, the Lord so often used this image of wedding to describe the kingdom of God. And then in the book of Revelation, it says all of human history will end in a marriage, in a wedding between Jesus Christ and his church. Why, Jesus even did some miraculous catering at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, did he not? This analogy, bridegroom and bride, didn't just originate in the New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with this image of God and Israel as husband and wife. The Lord God, as the bridegroom, says to his bride in the book of Song of Solomon, you have ravished me. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes. With one jewel of your necklace, how sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. So is it any wonder that the loveliest analogy of heaven the loveliest analogy for eternal life is that of a wedding. The words that we heard today from the book of Revelation after judgment was pronounced by God on the world in the 18th chapter. 
We read this in the 19th chapter. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Christ the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen and bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. There are other images and symbols of heaven in the Bible. You'll hear some next Sunday if you come to worship here at St. Luke's. You'll hear the image of heaven as a city with the river of life flowing through it. And the, and the tree uh, that grows by the river of life will have fruit for every month of the year, it, which is for the healing of the nations. But this morning, I want to talk about this wonderful image of heaven as a wedding between Christ and his church. St. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I have betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. Here's the romance of romances. If so many movies in the past have, have ended with a wedding and they lived happily ever after, which you think, it didn't happen that way. This one ends with a romance of romance, with a wedding, with a marriage that does end happily ever after. I notice that your rector, or whoever it is, gives you a bulletin insert there, that says a blank space for you to write notes. So if you're doing that, here's the first thing I want you to take from this sermon and from this image of Christ and his church. It is the metaphor that ought to inspire us, first of all, to greater purity. For Christ loves the church, writes the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. Christ loves the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without Blemish. Now, the first thing to take from that is that we do not purify ourselves. We cannot purify ourselves. We do not have the power to sanctify ourselves. The sin with which we were born and which we live and which we have almost daily confirmed runs through every aspect of our being. It runs through our minds so we do not always think rightly. It runs through our hearts so we do not always feel rightly. And it runs through our bodily appetite so we don't always desire rightly. That doesn't mean we always think wrongly, but it does mean we can't always depend upon our minds to think correctly. 
doesn't mean that our hearts always feel wrongly, but we can't always depend upon their feelings. You know the old song, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? It can be wrong when it's wrong. So we cannot trust our hearts to always feel rightly. And we cannot, God knows, always trust our bodily appetites to always desire rightly. I was filled yesterday after my first helping of of pulled pork. (laughs) I really didn't need a second helping. But after I had one more dessert than I should have had, my desire, my bodily appetite wanted to end the meal with protein. So I got another helping of the pulled pork. And then I had to run after in the afternoon to get the pulled pork off. What kind of living is that? Stupid. But you see, my mind doesn't always think rightly. My feelings, my heart doesn't always feel rightly. And my bodily appetite doesn't always desire rightly. So I need someone from outside of myself to cleanse me, sanctify me, purify me. Because I can't do it on my own. That's the first step in recovery from alcohol, isn't it? Came to a conclusion that I was powerless over alcohol and a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, the Christian says, I came to the conclusion I was powerless over sin. But Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, is more powerful than I and more powerful than sin. And he can restore me to sanity. He sanctifies us. Why? By water and the word. As the word of God is preached and takes root in us, it begins a sanctification process in us to transform us from the inside out. And so St. Paul says, for Christ loves the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present her holy. And blameless and irreproachable before him. But then this this message from the book of Revelation adds something to it. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's you and me. Our righteous deeds are what we are clothed with when we come to the wedding. Yes, he sanctified us by his blood. Yes, he cleansed us through his word. But we have our part to play as well, just as every bride who prepares for a wedding has her part to play in being ready for the marriage. So you and I have that. So the first thing that you write down, if you're writing down in that space, is purity of life. Good works, righteous deeds, just actions, moral purity after we've received The sanctifying work of Jesus Christ through his cross. But catch this. A bride is to love her husband. If she keeps herself for him. It is because she loves him rather than fears him. 
you know, a religion that is that is merely a relationship of rules is no liberating faith. So often we speak of our faith in Christ as keeping some rules and regulations. But I wonder if a wife who never sleeps with anybody else, never flirts with another, keeps her promises vigilantly, but never shows love to her husband, is that a sufficient marriage? So often, we're doing what God wants us to do. But we do it without love. I remember some years ago now, getting ready for a sermon on the prodigal son. I was in my office at the church. It was seven o'clock in the morning, an hour before the eight o'clock Eucharist. And I was putting the final touches on the sermon. I had pen in hand and my piece of paper right there with my sermon notes. And right in the midst of my preparation and prayer, I heard a voice behind me. It said, Mark, why don't you love me? I know who I knew who the voice was. I didn't need to turn around. I knew I wouldn't have seen anyone in the flesh. But I knew who it was speaking to me. It was the Lord God. Mark, why don't you love me? I was contrasting in the sermon the prodigal son and the elder brother. I was contrasting how the elder brother was there on the ranch. When the younger brother had gone off and wasted his inheritance with profligate living. And the elder brother had stayed back and worked on the ranch. But he worked on the ranch as if he were a slave and not a son. And when the father said, let us kill the fatted calf, or the son has returned, he was lost and now he's found. And the elder brother said to his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. So when God said, Why don't you love me? I dropped my pen on the desk and I began to weep and said, Lord, I don't remember how anymore. I've been so busy serving you, caring for your people, being a priest, being a pastor. I've forgotten how to love you. I said, Lord, you're going to have to show me how. I had become the elder brother, doing all the right things with no love in my heart for my Lord. We can become like that, you know. 
It's like we're in a marriage where there's no love. And the bridegroom is continually trying to woo us back. You see, we can do all the right things on Sunday morning. We know when to bow. We know when to bend. We know when to cross ourselves. We know how to hold our hands. The altar guild knows how to get everything right. But we can do all of that with no love in our heart. Jesus was once having a dinner with a Pharisee named Simon. And a woman of ill repute came in. And she began to weep at Jesus' feet. And, and, and as she was weeping at his feet, she saw that her tears were falling on the, on the feet of the Lord. And then it, having nothing to wipe up the mess that she was making because of her tears on her feet, she took down her hair and began to wipe his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee was aghast. And said, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. But Jesus was more of a prophet than he realized. And Simon said, knowing, Jesus said, knowing what Simon was thinking, let me ask you a question, Simon. One man owed $50 and the other owed $5,000. And the man forgave both. Who will love the man the most? And for the first time all day, Simon had got it right. He said, the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, who, he who is forgiven little loves little. He was forgiven much, loves much. Sometimes, my friends, we can hold the right belief with the wrong heart and wrong attitude. And we think we are so correct. When deep in our heart, there is no love for God. And when there's no love for God, there's no love for people. That's why Jesus said in the gospel reading today, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. It's so easy, my friends, to keep the commandments with no love. So, if you're keeping notes, write down under purity, love, and ask yourself, where's my love for God? He's the bridegroom. You are the bride. And then there is, when there's love, intimate communion with one another. I'll never forget a deacon I had in a parish, Mo Campbell. Mo had been an engineer and a deacon for over 40 years. His wife came down with cancer and he cared for her and nurtured her. And one day he said, came to me and said, uh, Father Mark, I won't be able to do the work of a deacon anymore. I need to, for, I need to be there with, bar, with my wife as she dies. And after Carol died, he began to throw himself into ministry. He was doing all, th all kinds of things around the church. But one day he said, Father Mark, I'm, I'm going back to Sheridan, Wyoming for my high school reunion. It's our 50th reunion. I'm going back. I said, have a good time, Mo. Well, he came back and I knew there was something different. 
And one day he said, I've been carrying on this relationship with a woman from who graduated with me uh, over the Internet. I said, over the Internet. I mean, this was some years ago, you see. You didn't expect a 70 year old man to be carrying on a relationship over the Internet. And, and, and he says, Barbara and I are getting married. And we all thought, oh, Barbara, who is this Barbara? We don't know who she is. Is she a gold digger? Who is she? Well, he brought her. She came out to, to meet uh, all of us here at the church. And oh, as soon as we met her, we thought, I don't know if Bo is good enough for her. <laughs> but she foolishly entered in and he entered in. And then the way they just loved one another. It was just a wonderful sight to behold. It's like they had a second chance at love. My friends, in all eternity, you're going to have a second chance at love. Because the whole thing ends. The whole movie of the universe ends in a marriage between Christ and his church. And the angels say, shouting throughout the universe, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Some years ago, I had a couple come to me from, uh, for, uh, to get married. They were a young, committed Christian couple, which meant they didn't, weren't living together. They hadn't slept together. And they both had kept themselves as virgins. For their wedding day. They came in to meet with me for the premarital counseling. After we set the date and and began to talk about the wedding, I walked them out of the door of the church and they started walking to their car and they were holding hands. And I thought, now there's a picture of the church. They are living today in preparation for the wedding. Every aspect of their life is being organized around the marriage itself. And it's not just a marriage of a wedding that lasts a day, but a marriage that lasts a lifetime. They are living today as bride and bridegroom. And I thought, I wonder... How many Christians today are living today as the bride of Christ? If we're living as the bride of Christ, we're seeking his purity. We're asking ourselves, do I love him? Am I living with intimacy with him? And is is there joy in my heart? For the day that's coming. Are you living today as the bride of Christ? You heard the word of the Lord. Read just a few moments ago. Let us rejoice and exult. And give God the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed in fine linen. Bright and pure, 
And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God to you. Amen.